I think I've shared with you folks before that, that I am not a real big TV watcher, um, in part for time, in part because I guess I don't uh, fully appreciate the quality of TV today. Um, but I do watch some TV, and, and uh, the TV programs that I'm sort of drawn to are those that are quasi-educational. And I probably put the emphasis on the quasi more than on the educational. Um, because I don't really like watching seminars or, or uh, college lectures on TV, but I do like to learn in the process, and so I love watching documentaries um, or things on a channel called the Discovery Channel. In fact, one of the ones that uh, programs I've sort of uh, taken a, a liking to in the last few years is a program called Gold Rush. Any of you seen that? Has anybody had a chance to Watch that. A few of you have. Um, well, the the kind of the the storyline behind that is they they've taken a number of different mining crews uh, who have been mining up in Alaska, and then they just sort of track their day to day experiences. Some of those crews were very seasoned, knew exactly what they were doing. Other of those crews had no idea what they were getting into, um, and so it was just sort of interesting to see not only what's involved in mining, but how they would respond to those. As the seasons have progressed, the crews have changed over time, um, and they've even done some spin-off things. That bottom one, Gold Rush um, Whitewater, is, a, is an, a new approach where these individuals are actually dredging gold out of the bottom of fast-moving streams and creeks, which has its whole own unique set of challenges. Um, but as they've done that, as the changes have gone with the different crews, one of the other changes that's occurred is they've had to go to different locations. So rather than just Alaska, they've, I think they actually did some uh, mining here in Oregon, but they've gone to all over the world to try to find gold because in terms of Alaska, the, the easy gold has pretty much been exhausted just not available to, to, to get anymore. So instead, they're having to dig deeper. They're having to find new creative ways to, to draw out the treasure that remains. And all of that makes me think a little bit about uh, what it is to be a Christian and, and to try to appreciate God's truths and, and the wisdom he passes on to us. There's some of those concepts that are really easy for us to grasp. They're sort of on the surface, aren't they? God's love and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. But there's other nuggets that are there that we have to dig a little deeper we have to look a little more closely in order to be able to find that treasure. And, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning as we continue on in our series of First John, uh, Walking in the Light. We're, uh, we're looking at a passage where we're going to look at some, some ideas, some concepts that probably are not a, a part of every day conversation with Christians, but I think still helpful and important for us to know as followers of Christ. We're going to be looking at this day at a passage from the book of First uh, John, the second chapter, verses 18 through 29. I'd encourage you to flip open to your Bibles. We are not going to read that text in its entirety just because of the length, but we're going to be looking at different portions of that, and if you've got your Bible open, uh, you'll be able to quickly refer to those. And as we do this, we're going to look at kind of three different areas. We're going to look at this idea of, of uh, last hour, a second idea of Antichrist. And then uh, I wrap up with the idea of God's anointed. But we begin with this idea of the last hour, of the last hour. And it's a, a concept that John speaks about in verses 18 and 19. So let me read those for us this morning. Dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, 
they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Last hour. You know, as we hear that phrase, I think it makes most of us think um, something that was going to happen pretty soon after John wrote this. It certainly seems to, to suggest that. And yet, here we are 2,000 years later. So what, what's going on there? How, how does that sort of all come together? And it's as we dig deeper, as we look at the Greek in this text, um, that we see that phrase last hour, eskatos horos, that, um, that we find, I think, the meaning that helps us in the midst of all of that. Um, the word eskatos, uh, meaning last, um, is preceded in our Bibles by the word the, the last hour, indicating, at least to me, a, a pretty specified period of time. But in the Greek, there is no article that's there. Um, so we put it in just so it makes more sense as we read the text, but it's not actually there in the Greek. So you could use the word the, but you could also use the word a, a last hour, which pretty significantly changes the meaning. And that word hour, oros, um, can mean hour, but it can also mean season or time. Um, and so we have this idea that there is something significant, obviously, that he's talking about here, but the inclination could be that it's not just a one-time event, but something that happens reoccurringly. And this idea of, of being last hour uh, suggests that it's something intense, something significant, uh, but it's something that may be reoccurring. And I think as we look throughout history, that's exactly what we have found. Different periods where there's been uh, that feel like they're in the last days, that, that sense that things couldn't get any worse, um, and then it seems to calm down, and then it gets bad, and then it seems to calm down. We think of back in, in, the, in the periods actually of, of, of Paul and of John and, and the Roman Empire. You know, if you go through and, and read about the Roman Empire, they had a lot of crazy emperors. Um, but some of those crazy emperors also had a very strong dislike for Christians, so much so that they um, imposed upon them a horrific, almost um, unimaginable kind of suffering. And so we think of, of people such as uh, Nero and a guy named Maximus, another emperor by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. But it doesn't stop with them. We go beyond that and we can think of, of additional periods where it was very difficult for Christians. Uh, we think of the Ottoman Empire uh, that persecuted Christians heavily. We think of, of Lenin, of Hitler, who both had a, a strong dislike, even hatred, for Christians. We think of our period today, uh, people tell us, or, or those who study these kinds of things tell us that there has never been a greater period in the history of mankind than today when it comes to the persecution of Christians. And so again, we see this ebb and flow when it comes to these times that seem to be just so horrible and then it gets better. It gets bad, gets better, gets bad, gets better. And so we have this sort of cyclical nature uh, to things which might bring up the question, well, why does God allow this? Why does he allow these bad things uh, to keep happening? And it's an answer that I think we find pretty clearly explained to us uh, by Peter in the book of Second Peter, the third chapter, uh, beginning with verse 3, where it says this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming? He promised, talking here about uh, the fact that Jesus said he was going to return, he's going to come back. What, what's going on? He still, hasn't ha he still hasn't come back. And it continues on. 
Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And then I think he really hits the nail on the head in verse 9. But the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. He's patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why doesn't God just wrap things up? Why doesn't he just be done with it and, and, and move on to the return of Jesus? Well, because he loves us, all of us. And so there's people that are out there that have not yet made that decision to invite Christ into their lives. In my case, that's some family members and some friends and acquaintances I have may be true for you. And if Jesus was to come back today, while well, that would be a glorious occasion, their opportunity to make that decision kind of ends at that point. When Jesus comes back, uh, that choice that we have on whether to decide to follow him or not is over. And so he prolongs things just a little bit longer so that maybe some of my family members or your family members or neighbors or coworkers or friends uh, might have one more opportunity to make Jesus their Lord and their Savior. As we think about this idea of, of these last hours, um, the question could emerge, is, is this a period that we're in right now? Are we in this season, this time of, of the last hour? And I, I don't know the answer to that. God alone knows that. And certainly, it's a challenging time that we're, we're in. If we look to the, the description for us in, in Matthew 24, it would seem to suggest that we're not in the, the final home stretch. There's still some prophecies that, that haven't been realized. Uh, but it talks about this thing being birth pangs, this, this era of birth pangs. And maybe we are in the era of birth pangs. But wherever we're at in the chronology of God, we realize that there's going to be struggles, that there's going to be challenges, there's going to be hardships. Not because it's unique to us, because that just is part of that cycle of history. But when those things happen, just as God has been present with his people in the past, he will be present with us now and help us as he has helped others to persevere. And so we have this idea of, of the last hour, rather than being a singular event, maybe being reflective of, of numerous events. John also talks here about this idea of antichrists, of antichrist. We read about it in uh, the 18th verse, again, of the second chapter. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. My experience uh, in talking with people about the Antichrist is that there's, there's sort of this opinion and belief that there's one big Antichrist, and, and we see some indications of that. In the book of, of 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, verses 3 and 4, talks about uh, one re referenced as the man of lawlessness. We look in Revelations 13, and we see of this, of this uh, very evil presence that comes in to the world, and I think we think of this as sort of a, a, an individual, and he's been depicted in, in various books and movies. A number of years ago, there was a series called The Omen that came out that talked about uh, the Antichrist as he grew up and stepped into power. And yet, as we look to Scripture, we see that in addition to there being this one individual in the end times, that leading up to that, that there's actually a number of individuals, Antichrists, plural in form. John speaks about them here in 1 John. He speaks also about them in 2 John. 
We see Jesus referencing them uh, in Matthew 24. He talks about false messiahs and false prophets uh, that are coming. And if you think about the, the, the main Antichrist, this one that's going to come in the very end times as being the, the big A Antichrist, we can think of these numerous Antichrists maybe as being the little A Antichrist. But whether a big A Antichrist or a little A Antichrist, there are some things that they share in common, and John illuminates that for us. He says, for example, that they're liars and also uh, that they deny the divinity of Christ. In 1 John 2, the 22nd chapter, it says that very thing. Who is the liar here talking about the Antichrist? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the or a Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. And so we shouldn't be surprised when uh, we see uh, whether it be the big A or little A Antichrist coming along that the, the tactics they use are designed to deceive and manipulate and mislead the world into believing that Jesus wasn't truly divine. Now sometimes they'll say, oh, he was a good guy. Oh, he had some great teachings. They might even acknowledge he was a holy man. But he wasn't the son of God. Because if they can convince the world of that, that he wasn't really divine in his nature then we have the option of sort of accepting or not accepting Jesus' teachings, of following or not following, because after all, he's just another ordinary human being like you and like me. And this idea, this thought of the, the, uh, the lack of divinity connected with Christ is one that's been there uh, for quite a long time, but it's had a resurgence here in recent years within our, our own society. Um, a, a number of years ago, and we've seen similar books since then, a big one came out called The Da Vinci Code. You may have read that. It's got a very intriguing storyline that goes with it, but the underlying idea behind it is that Jesus really was not truly the Son of God. And so we see this idea conveyed that, um, that there's this lack of divinity in Christ, whether conveyed through an antichrist, one of several, or whether the ultimate one. So the, one of the things we gain is this recognition that, that there are different figures throughout history who probably fill, fill this role of being an antichrist. Second thing we discover, though, is that um, these antichrists are not unfamiliar with uh, you and me, not personally, but what it means to be a part of the church. Because the text tells us that they come from among us. They come from among us. In that uh, 19th verse, it says that very thing. They, referring here to the Antichrist, went out from us. But they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And that idea, they, they came from among us. It just sounds like another horror show, doesn't it? it sort of gives you the, the, the heebie-jeebies. In fact, as I was uh, looking for some illustrations here, I came across a poster that describes this. It's almost too horrible, too horrific to show you, but I thought I would put it up just in case. I mean, it's scary, isn't it? Um, they are among us. Um, but on all seriousness, uh, one of the things that we have the indication of is that these Antichrist had their origins in places like this. Now, I don't want you looking around, seeing, well, is this person an Antichrist? Is this person an So don't, don't be doing that. Um, but they probably had an experience in their life where they listened to sermons for a while and bowed their heads during times of prayer and maybe even sang in the hymns. So what happened? 
But what happened is they never took the step to move from just being an observer to being a part of the family. John told us they never really belonged to us because they never truly gave their hearts and their lives to Christ. They never came to know him truly as Lord and as Savior. And it's, I think, important for us to be mindful of that because it, it gives us some insight in a couple of different ways. Uh, for those of us that are Christians, it's, it's helpful for us to be mindful that as we think about those who, who don't know Christ, that there are, are those individuals uh, plenty outside the church. But folks, that there's probably also uh, non-believers in the church. Absolutely, in fact, in the church. Now, I don't know if that's true of anyone here today. But in most churches you go to, there are people there who are not truly followers of Jesus. They may have gone to church for a long time. They may be very involved in the life of the body, but in terms of truly making him Lord and Savior of their life, that's a step they've never taken. And so we need to realize both outside and inside the church, the people are watching. Uh, they're looking at the things that we say, they're listening to the things they say, we're they're looking at the things that we do. They're judging and evaluating and critiquing God uh, based on uh, what we do. Because if they're really not a part of the, the family of God, how else do they, they sort of gain this evaluation of God? Well, it's by looking at those who claim to be a part of his family. And so, as believers, we're sort of in this glass house. Now, we probably don't want to be in that situation, but it's just the reality of being a follower of Jesus today. And so we need to be aware, again, the things that we say, the attitudes that we have, the, uh, the, the actions we undertake, they're being watched outside the church and inside the church as well. And for those that aren't believers, um, and I don't know if there's any, I'm guessing not, but if there are any unbelievers here today, let me request of you, in fact, let me plead with you, please don't evaluate our God based on our actions, or let me personalize this, please don't evaluate God based on my actions. Because while I assure you I do my best to try to represent him in a manner that glorifies him, that honors him, that is obedient to his ways and his teachings, I know far too well that I mess up. I say things I shouldn't say. I, I undertake actions I shouldn't uh, undertake. And if you're putting your trust in, in evaluating God on, on the things that I do or anyone else in this room, you're going to be terribly disappointed. The way that we know who our God truly is is by looking to the, the source that gives us the, the authentic picture of who he is, and that's his word. We look to this book to give us insight and understanding to help provide clarity for us. Because again, if we don't do that, what ends up is we, we, we fall into this idea of, of realizing that all have fallen short. And so, so we need to be people who are living out those lives God calls us to live, as, as Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others outside inside the church that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Because if you, again, if you just look to us, well, this is what you discover, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
It'd be like trying to, to evaluate Billy Graham based on uh, the conduct of his uh, landscapers or his trash man. They may be basically pretty good people, but they would never claim to be Billy Graham. Folks, we don't claim to be God. But we know where you can get a really good picture of who he is. And so look to the source. And so we have this idea as we look through this text of John of, of the fact that as Christians, we live in, in probably a multiple of series of, of last times, last seasons, of the fact that, that there are antichrists, plural, out there. Maybe in our world today, I don't know, but they do exist. And that we need to be alert to them. We need to be on guard, aware of those, and we need to live our lives in a manner that reflects the to the best of our ability, this true God that we worship. And then finally, we see that John talks here uh, to sort of help offset this about the fact of a group of those who are anointed. He referenced that in uh, this 20th verse of the second chapter with these words. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Now, who's the you here? Who's he he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the believers that were reading this letter, probably individuals in a house church in the, uh, in the area of Ephesus, but because of the timelessness of God's truth, he's speaking to us as well. We are the you referenced in here, which means God has anointed us. That's pretty cool. If you just think about that for a, a moment, of all of the things God could have done, of all the people God could have anointed, he chose to anoint us. And how did he do that? By allowing his Holy Spirit to come within and to rest upon us. God selected us to be the vessels where his Holy Spirit dwells. And as a part of that, not only do we have God within us, but God reveals his truths through the Holy Spirit to us. Mentions that right here, but it talks about that same idea in other places as well. In the Gospel of John, in the 16th chapter, it says this, but when he, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, but he'll speak only what he hears, uh, and he will come to tell what is yet to come. God reveals his truth to us, which is so important for us to, to be able to do because we live in a day and an age where that's very difficult, difficult in part because of so much information that's out there. We are just smothered with the dissemination of stories and tweets and, and uh, messages and all the kinds of things that are, that are available out there. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to help us to discern truth from falsehood today. We need that not only because of the amount of information, but also because those that would seek to deliberately provide misleading information, that false information, they have gotten really good at their task in today's age. You look at the ways that things can, can be manipulated through media and other sources, and it is, it's just staggering today. If we think back about this situation with Ukraine and the war that's being fought there. You know, it used to be if you had a military force, you, there were sort of three branches you needed to, to invest in. You need to have a, sort of a naval side of things. You needed to have a land, an army side, and then you needed to have an air force. But there's a fourth category that almost every army has now, and that's a group that deals with the Internet, the cyber attacks. Because there's so much power and influence that comes uh, through the, the Internet today. That's a, a highly sought-after area that, that um, governments and military invest in. We need to be on guard because there is so much 
false information, and there are so many that are very good at providing that false information. Another thing that we find is, is that not only does, does this truth help us to, to be aware of, of the lies that are out there, but it, it also helps, gives us maybe some insights on who the liars are, because those aren't the same thing. We need to know what the lies are, but we also need to know who the sources of those lies are as well. And how do we gain that discernment? Well, we pray. And I don't just say that as a platitude or as a pastor because that's what a pastor is supposed to say. I say that because there's power in prayer. We pray that the Holy Spirit will raise within us red flags that our our minds, our hearts will be sensitive to when we come across something that's wrong or just doesn't seem quite right. We pray that God would bring individuals into our lives who can can provide us godly counsel, who are men and women who who are followers of Jesus, individuals of integrity that can point us in the right directions and things. We pray that God would shield us from those who are liars and cheats and swindlers and those who would be used by the evil one to bring about pain and hardship and suffering. As God reveals this truth to us, we we pray that God will allow this to to not only live lives that are to our betterment, but God would use those things then to to help the world around us. And that even as we look to others to, to be a source of that, God says there's still a responsibility we have in this process as well. In verse 24 of that second chapter, it says this, As for you, us, See that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. What are those things that were there from the beginning? We've talked about this before. It's those those foundational truths of God, those things that, that exist throughout the ages that are timeless in their nature. But we need to continue to, to have those truths, those, those ideas refreshed. We need to, to grasp not just the big ideas, not just the big gold nuggets that are there on the surface, but we need to, to mine down, we need to dig down so that we understand those hidden treasures as well. And we do that as we look to this book. We do this as we study this book. We do this as we we take these principles and integrate them into our lives. We do that as we we participate in Sunday school classes and Bible studies, as we we have devotion times daily with God, as we listen to, to sermons or are part of small groups. All of those things help reveal to us those truths that are needed for us again to live the lives God calls us to, to, to be the people God calls us to be. And so my hope is as we uh, kind of wrap up for this morning looking at the passages for today, verses uh, 18 through 29, that you'll take with you at least three maybe new nuggets that you didn't have. Uh, one of those being this idea that, that there are periods throughout history where, where God comes, allows challenging moments to exist, but gets his people through them. And he allows those, why? Because he loves us and wants a few more to enter into the kingdom. There may be a second piece is the recognition that there isn't just the one antichrist, but that there's multiple antichrists. And we need to be cognizant of that. We need to be aware of that as we we look at those who are leaders in our world. And then finally, that we need to celebrate the news, that we are anointed by God. Of all of the ways God could have worked, he chose us as his vessels. He chose us to anoint with his spirit, a, a spirit of power, a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of truth. And if we do those things, well, I think God will help keep us on the path he would desire for us. 
As we do those things, uh, maybe we can avoid the path that um, a cartoon character named Calvin has followed. And let me wrap up with a, a cartoon for you as we close for today. I'm not sure if you can read this or not, so let me read the different uh, boxes as they come along. Uh, this is a, uh, from a comic called Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is a little boy. Hobbes is his, uh, is his lion friend who's really a stuffed lion, but comes to life in the comic. And so it begins with Calvin saying these words, I'm a great believer in the value of novelty, the next frame. I say anything new is good by definition. It can be shock or insult or offend me so long as it doesn't bore me. And then you go to the next frame. And if you can't give me something new, then repackage the old so it looks new. Novelty is all that matters. I won't pay attention if it's not fresh and different. And then in the very last frame, his friend, the wise one, stuffed animal, the tiger says, well, I can see why timeless truth doesn't sell very well. And then Calvin wraps up, give me a good old flash in the pan any day. Folks, it's those timeless truths that God calls us to retain. It's those timeless truths that give us the direction that we seek, that we need. It's those timeless truths that help us to filter through all of the mess that's out there, all of the inundation of, of information that comes our way so that we can be a people who walk the path that God calls us to walk, that we can be the people that truly are disciples of the one true God, that we can do that this day and every day. Amen.